Hello and welcome to a special surprise between season bonus episode. It's a collaboration between myself and food historian Sam Bilton, who you'll know from previous episodes of the podcast, Gingerbread and Saffron. But she's a fantastic food historian and author. She has a podcast too called Comfortably Hungry. We have talked to each other several times about tripe. And we thought rather than just appear on each other's podcast to talk about the same thing, we should maybe make one together. And this is the result. And an episode about tripe comes at just the right time for a coronation, don't you think? It was really fun to put together. We've combined each other's formats. So I've got a cooking spot like I do sometimes. And I visited a tripe stall, Chadwick's at Berry Market. I interviewed the owner. Sam interviewed journalist and chef Rachel Roddy and asked for her dinner party dish on the tripe theme, something Sam always asks her guests. The brief, I suppose, was to try and make tripe more appealing and less scary. We're both awful fans. We've both had flirtations with tripe, although I suppose me more so than Sam. And, well, we talk about it in the episode. I'm not going to mention it now. True to my format, my episode has an excised Easter egg for subscribers. If you want to become a subscriber, a £3 monthly subscriber, and access my Easter Eggs page with all its premium content, and to receive a monthly newsletter, please go to the Support the Blog and Podcast tab on the website BritishFoodHistory.com. If you're not aware, there was in fact a whole episode, bonus episode of the podcast, tagged on to the last season. But there's hours of extra content to listen to, and the list of blog posts and recipes is forever growing. You can, of course, if you don't want to become a £3 subscriber, but you'd like to give a little bit, you could treat me to a virtual pint or virtual coffee. But, as usual, no pressure. I'll tell you all about that Easter egg at the end of the episode, along with other news, including a Manchester-based in-person talk and a round-table event at the British Library. Both are raffled stroke 18th century cooking related. On the subject of... Elizabeth Raffle, don't forget my biography of Elizabeth is out now, published by Pen and Sword. It's called Before Mrs. Beaton, Elizabeth Raffled, England's Most Influential Housekeeper. And of course, there's my previous book, A Dark History of Sugar. I've got more news like podcast appearances, when the podcast proper will return, etc. But I'll say all that at the end because I know not everybody wants to hear about it. So let's turn back to today's episode. Sam and I talk about all aspects of tripe why it's no longer eaten. We look at other countries to compare and contrast with Britain. We discuss England's tripe restaurants, the different types of tripe. Rachel Roddy talks us through her favourite ways of cooking it. And I attempt to cook up two classic dishes, deep fried tripe and tripe and onions. And of course, I get that tripe from Chadwick Stall in Berry Market. As usual, please get in contact with me if you've got anything to add. There'll be a post-bag episode again at some point. So I want your memories of tripe, your cooking tips, as well as anything else you might have spotted in the news, in cookbooks, generally about British food, history, and traditional cooking techniques. And the best way to do that is to email me at neil at britishfoodhistory.com or send me a DM on Twitter at neilbuttery or Instagram, Dr. That's dr underscore neil underscore buttery. Leave a message in the comments or post on the new British Food History Facebook discussion groups page, which is at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British Food History. Okay, so here we go. A special episode with Sam Bilton and Neil Buttery talking tripe. I'll be back at the end on my own 
to tie things up. Enjoy. Okay, tripe. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? It is an interesting thing. It's a strange alien thing that um, gives me the creeps. I mean, you like me, we're fairly pro nose to tail eating, but I think it's the one bit between the nose and the tail (laughs) that has basically eluded me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you don't see it for sale in... I haven't seen it for sale in Southern Butchers, where I live in Sussex. Mm. So it's not something I've ever had the opportunity to experience. Or if I, when I have had the rare opportunities in my life, I've passed them by. Sure. For the same reasons, because it is quite an unusual, as you say, looking and um, to me doesn't look very appetising. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because most awful you think of as kind of like really sort of dark browny red and it's and it's really rich which i guess you could say is equally gross if you're not used to eating it uh, i guess that's part of the problem it's about being used to eating it i think but the fact it's white just it just makes it look like it's bland and the the, the honeycomb tripe i think looks quite pretty yeah it can do certainly uh, when you look at it on instagram uh usually sort of oriental dishes i've found most mostly when i've done a search on instagram for tri- tripe it's um yeah it can look very attractive i agree uh, i've had two brief flirtations with tripe one was in a chinese restaurant in manchester where it was all very spicy and had lots of chili in it my friend ordered it and i was like okay let's have a taste and i had a bit and I thought, well, that's an unusual texture. But there was so much chilli and stuff going on that I didn't really get a good idea what the tripe was as a food, as a flavour. My other interaction with tripe was an Andriette sausage in Aix-en-Provence, which is one of the very few times I have been actually revolted by eating food. I'm, not I'm pretty fig- gung-ho. I'm laughing because my husband had exactly the same experience. I think we were in the Loire and that was, oh goodness, about 18 years ago. And we uh, we went to Lyon last summer and he could not be persuaded. Tripe is big in Lyon. Um, all awful is big in Lyon, to be fair. All meat is big in Lyon, but he could not mm. be persuaded, even though locals tried to tell him, no, it's, Completely different in this part of France. I think they use calf's intestines rather than pig's intestines, but he wasn't having any of it. He was exactly the same mm. as you. He once tried scarred for life. He's never going back. Yeah. Well, I kind of thought, well, that's pig tripe. In Britain, it's ox tripe, beef tripe, or whatever you want to call it. So I thought, well, maybe it's a different thing. They're also prepared in very different ways. So I gave it the benefit of the doubt. I guess we'll get on to that. Yeah. I really wanted to get some inspiration. And this is mm. kind of one of the reasons why I wanted to collaborate with you. Because we've I don't know why we've talked about tripe so much in the past. Um, but we've kind of said, oh, it's just such a big hole in our culinary knowledge. Yeah. Uh, for me, it, it was prompted by the, um, the first series of Comfortably Hungry is on austerity. And when I was reading through old cookbooks... Uh, certainly from the world around sort of or between the wars and around both first and second world wars they all go on about tripe being this uh very economical and healthy thing to eat it was a form of food economy really it was cheap and plentiful you get an awful lot of tripe i believe from one cow so it's 
I was just intrigued, really, like you. I don't, why don't why is it something that's so hard to get hold of, and why has it fallen out of favour? Because you can still buy awful for the most part. It's not as perhaps easy as easy to buy as it was, but you can still get your liver and your kidneys. Mm-hmm. If you've got a good butcher, you should be able to get hearts. But it's yeah, definitely. I that's what intrigued me. Why it's really why has it gone from hero to zero in in <laughs> quite a short relatively historically speaking in terms of what we deal with short space of time and it's so well revered or it seems to be in, in other countries and if not revered maybe it's too strong a word but it's just part and parcel of everyday food people just don't think about it it's just a food i mean there's certainly a um andouillette kind of association in in france where they celebrate it and we certainly don't celebrate it well, few foods celebrate like that, I suppose, in this country. You think of tripe and onions, which I think we both know what tripe and onions is, but it's just, it just seems like bland tripe in a bland sauce with no spices, really, probably under-seasoned. And it's just like, oh, it just seems so crap. But yeah, it, well, it does really. And it's interesting because Fergus Henderson, he, uh, at the beginning of his recipe that he has for tripe and onions in his book, Nose to Tail Eating, He actually says, do not let the trite word deter you. Let its soothing charms win you over and enjoy it, as do those who always have. Which is interesting because he's right. People did used to really enjoy it. It was hugely popular, wasn't it, at one point? Particularly in the north of the country, you had entire restaurants devoted to selling tripe. Yeah. At one point, I think, I mean, this data might be wrong. The biggest number I found... Uh, in the northwest, at one point, the UCP, which is the United Cattle Products, which are specialised in preparing dressing tripe and distributing it around the country, they had 146 restaurants in the northwest alone. Wow. And Levensume, where I live in South Manchester, there was a tripe shop. It's now um, a, a, a real ale pub. <laughs> How things have changed. <laughs> Indeed. I found an example of one restaurant uh, called Tripe Deluxe opened by Vos and Sons in 1917 up in the, in the northwest of England. And it was pretty swish. It had 300 covers in it, so it was huge. All wooden panelling, chandeliers, it had an orchestra, a live orchestra. So, you know, it was really was just part of the fabric of, of daily life and obviously considered a treat, at least in yeah. 1917. Well, that's, that's really interesting isn't it because I, I love the idea that you'd go out for dinner and have an orchestra anyway but to go out for a dinner at such a specialist restaurant and have an orchestra mm. should say it must have been quite a treat really it's definitely come a long way and I think it's suffered a bit of a, a PR crisis really over the years yeah if you read George Orwell's descriptions of it it's they make it sound quite horrendous I'm not sure when he was right the road to Wigan Pier came out, but there's, there's got quite an lengthy description in there of uh, Mrs. Brooker's tripe shop uh, where he was lodging. And uh, it doesn't endear it uh, <laughs> to me. <laughs> if, I'd, if that had been my only encounter with tripe, I don't think any amount of uh, chilli or tomato was going to persuade me to eat it. So, yeah, I think I say PR crisis is what I think it suffered from. 
Yes, indeed. And uh, I suppose what we need to do is we need to get some inspiration, don't we? Yes. Yeah, so you definitely need some inspiration. And I think that actually, for me, I've looked in old recipe books and it's, as you say, it's pretty much tripe and onions. Depends how far back you go. Robert May, I saw, had a recipe mm. for like a pickled tripe that was um, had lots of garlic in it, which was interesting. Um, perhaps that's a way to go. I'm not familiar with it being served like that quite so much as tripe and onions but I'm thinking maybe f- go further afield so I had a chat with Rachel Roddy who writes a column for the Guardian Rachel has an interesting relationship with tripe because her family are originally from Lancashire and so she had mm-hmm. actually experienced tripe when she was a child because her grandparents both her grandparents as we will hear used to cook it and in slightly different ways as well which is interesting but she's also come across it in Rome, where she lives now, in, and she lives in the quarter called Testaccio. Uh, apologies to any Italian listeners, listeners if I've pronounced <laughs> that incorrectly. I, I'm afraid my Italian accent is much like my French and my Spanish, truly awful. But she lives in what they call the fifth quarter, the, uh, the Quinta Quarto. One of the reasons that part of Italy, or that part of Rome rather, has achieved that name is because it's famous for its offal and she has particularly Mm. fond of the way that they cook tripe and so we shall hear more about how they cook tripe in a moment what is it about tripe and other offal that puts people off from eating it i was thinking about this i think the look of it I think that was the 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 first thing that struck me although actually it's quite striking isn't it tripe but actually, yeah. a lot of meat is quite, is, is quite striking. So um, I then thought maybe it was also about the familiarity with it. So in both senses, that A, the look of it is unfamiliar, and, and B, then it's an unfamiliar meat. But I was wondering whether it was the other, yeah, the, the physical aspect of it, what it looks like. It's a striking thing, tripe, isn't it? It certainly is. It's almost quite alien looking, I think. Certainly if you're not used to seeing things like it's the colour for starters because it's so white. And obviously we think of meat being red um, or pink, but not so white. Is it just a British aversion, do you think? Or is, is this a version shared around the world? Well, I can talk in terms of Rome. So I've been here 18 years. So I feel if you'd asked me 18 years ago, I would have had a very different conversation with you. Although I, w- I would have had a conversation about it thanks to my grandparents, something we'll come to in a minute. But now having been in Rome for 18 years, it's, it's, it's very familiar and very much part of the culinary landscape here. But I didn't eat it as a child growing up, but certainly I was aware that my grandparents did. And again, now as a food writer, you know, I've, I, it's bec- I've talked quite a lot about tripe actually as part of Northern English food. My grandparents were both from, from Lancashire. And so actually it's been interesting to find comparisons between Northern English food and Roman food. And also then in my, you know, blurring my lines between the truth and what I write about, you know, it's something I've written about quite a lot. And actually my mum's observed that maybe my, my memories of tribe through my grandparents have become a bit nostalgic. So there's that aspect of it as well. How did your grandparents prepare tribe? So two ways. So my mum's family, Alice, my granny, would do it with white sauce and onions. Whereas my dad's family, Phyllis and John Roddy, they would have it with vinegar. Both grandparents used to buy it from United Cow Products because there were shops 
in the north weren't necessarily tribe. So yes, my mum, mum and dad both have very vivid memories as children of eating mum tripe with white sauce, and my dad tripe called slut with vinegar. Oh, so that was the yeah. <laughs> unfortunate name. name. <laughs> Yeah, so that's what I've asked mum and dad about this. I think I do remember conversations about offal. Also, because as a child, I really liked liver and kidneys, particularly kidneys. And my granny, my mum's my, my mum, had a pub in Oldham. All my grandparents cooked, but, but Alice particularly was a very, was a good cook. And I was, and I, I suppose I talked to food more. But again, I mean, I, is this my food writer? Is it wanting, me wanting to remember that my granny told me about tribe? Because they're, they're parallels I've drawn quite a lot. And they were very helpful in understanding Roman food, I think, to think about. Because I knew that my auntie May made soup with a cow heel in it. She, you know, she cooked with oxtail, lot, plenty of offal, liver and kidneys, obviously. And, but as children, there was tripe there. Do you think there's a snob factor attached to eating tripe from both in Britain and I'm wondering also in Italy as well? I'd love to go back in time and ask my grandma Roddy, my mum, my, my dad's parents, my grandma's relationship with, with, with tripe and eating and how that sort of represented, you know, sort of um, them not having very much money, being poor and then maybe, you know, having a bit more money, whether, you know, it, it, it was it was seen as a necessity food. But, you know, my, my grandma just I'm thinking, worried about what people thought. I wonder whether tri- she might have thought it was considered a bit common. Because I remember her mentioning things around food, my grandma Roddy. I remember her, you know, articulating things that I was probably too young to understand about, a, a lot about the war and how they hadn't had very much. And this pride and shame around not having enough a great pride in being very resourceful during the war and but then maybe shame about not not having more money or aspiring to being aspiring to eat differently at that changing time the same with my mum's mum Alice although I did I wasn't so aware of that those felt like undercurrents in what my granny or what my granny cooked I was very very conscious of them with my dad's mum when you mean snob do you mean it people consider it could go both ways couldn't it that it's seen as a, a a good thing to eat it it's interesting when you look at old English cookery books, often um, they're largely aimed at a middle class market and you would still find tripe recipes in there. So clearly it was served. Samuel Pepys would eat tripe and he certainly wasn't poor. So in if you go back in history, I don't think it was as negatively viewed as it was in the 20th century and in the 19th century when perhaps in this country, certainly it was seen more as a, a poor person's uh, meat, not something that necessarily richer people were eating. Although there were restaurants up north serving tripe, it certainly used to be eaten all over the country because I've found accounts in Sussex from the 18th century of it being eaten down here as dinner fest. And I just wondered whether the reason we don't eat it now, one of the reasons it's declined in popularity is because of the snob factor whether people sort of turn their noses up at it, as they do indeed, I think, a lot of waffle, to be fair. I don't think it's just tripe. I think even liver and kidneys, sweetbreads and brains aren't that widely available. It's so interesting, isn't it? I wonder how other offal became elevated to luxury. Two things happened in Italy. I mean, certainly on one level, I think that maybe not at the level of France. I had a chat with Pierre Kaufman recently at a dinner and he was talking about his love of tripe and it being a, a luxurious food, you know, considering it, you know, a sort of function and, and, and luxury at the same time. I mean, I've got my edition of Arda Boni, which is a, a 1939 recipe book. She was a, a Roman food writer, actually. But, you know, in that book, you've got tripe from Rome, but you've also got tripe from Bologna. You've got tripe from Genoa. You've got Florentine tripe. You know, I wonder if the relationship was, was with tripe, it was different in different regions. I think certainly in Rome, it was uh, the immediate history that I know 
um, is that of Testaccio, which was the slaughterhouse district. So where I live in Rome is, is actually a brave new world of Rome, actually. It was developed when Rome, Italy became, was united and Rome became the capital. And they built the slaughterhouse in 1870. And so a lot of people who live in Testaccio and still families who still live here worked in the slaughterhouse or built the railways. And that's where you see that history of people who worked here being paid in kind with offal as well as a small wage. And you see, you see a huge migration from Abruzzo and Umbria, other regions of Rome. So you see the, the, the importing of, of, of other regional cooking that met with the slaughterhouse tradition. And that, that's where you see some of these offal dishes. Also, the Roman Jewish tradition had a, had a, had a great tradition of, of offal being the cheapest, the waste. I mean, the classic fro Roman fritto misto of fried things was the free bits. It was the offal, the sweetbreads. I don't know whether there was tripe in that, but certainly wild herbs and flowers. So but what happened was you saw all that. It's like inroads, really are inroads all meeting in Rome. And so in, in Testaccio, you have this Roman cooking of quinto quarto, of the, the, the fifth quarter, the offal cooking, which includes tripe that um, emerged here in Testaccio. It's sort of almost a new cooking. I was going to say with with lots of ancient, you know, ancient roots from different places, and that, and then at the same time, of course, you know, the tomatoes arrived, the eighteen hundreds, the tomatoes finally, you know, taken hold, um, and you and you see the tripa alla romana, which is tripe, which is braised in um, with onion in tomato sauce, with lots of wild mint or mentuccia, and pecorino romano, and that is the that's the tripa alla romana. I have. 12 trattorias within 50 meters of where I live or 100 meters of where I live. And they all, they all have that on their menu. It's a classic. It's as still as ordered as, more ordered than a chicken breast, certainly, but as ordered as chicken hunter style or sausages on the grill. The dish you've just described sounds lovely. And I'm sure if tripe was served in a wonderful tomato sauce in this country, people would be more inclined perhaps to try it than, as you say, sort of this alien white looking flesh that often is presented in a white sauce with onions. Is that sort of a lack of imagination on our part or is it just simply a case of our taste have changed over the centuries? Thinking of myself, imagination or mind does certainly requires um, nourishing, doesn't it? Somebody the other day was describing a deep fried tripe to me that they'd had as a, an aperitivo with fizzy wine and, you know, deep fried and crisp and was salty. And I thought, oh, I, I mean, I've never made that. So so maybe, yes, it is imagination because we're just not fed in the same way. I've encountered plenty of aversion to tripe in, in Rome by people of all ages. I live above a butcher's shop who's pretty traditional. He always has a big roll of tripe right at the front of there. It's the first thing you see when they come in the shop. You know, and it's, he's not a specialist shop, it's just an ordinary butcher, but he has tripe and nervetti, the tendons, these two white things at the front of the counter. He will often make comments about his older customers still buying tripe. And it looks rather beautiful, actually. It's bleached, obviously, but it's in a big, I mean, it does look like it's half honeycomb and half wet dog tripe, isn't it? It looks like a roll of carpets. So it's, you know, so, so my imagination is fed by that. I really like tripe. And, and always have, but that's a lot to do with coming here and I love it in Alla Romana, in tomato sauce, with, with lots and lots of this mentuccia, which, I mean, it's a mint family, like Pennyroyal, but it's got a very strong, almost sage, mint, cappy, 
but it's delicious and it gives the tomato sauce this lovely warm spice and then loads of pecorino romano on top which is really salty that's not to say that every plate of tripe isn't is delicious but made well i really love it and so that then encouraged me to try it and in florence they do the lampledotto which it's the sort of inner the smallest stomach i think light and feathery and that's that's braised which of course is how it would have been done in Rome before tomato. If you actually are the Bonnie's recipes, it's in Bianco, so it's pre-tomato, but they braise it and that Lampedotta sandwich is delicious. It's, it's almost like a feathery or almost like gills of fish. So what do you think chefs and food writers could do to make tripe more appealing? Well, I think we could all, and I'm including myself as an English food writer, I think we could all start frying it, couldn't we? I really like the sound of frying it and trying new recipes. I had delicious tripe and white sauce at St. John because that was the other thing to say. I think I'd been to St. John for the first time in about 98, a couple of years after it opened. And I didn't have tripe that first time, but I'd, I'd had tripe at St. John. But I'd, and I bought the cookbook. And actually, it was one of the first books I brought back to Rome in 2005 or 2006 when I first came, because it's so at home in Rome, even though it's a very traditional English cookbook. You know, Fergus is cooking tripe and, and, and talking about offal and rabbit and, and, and kidneys and skate and anchovies. And, um, but the way he talks about the, the quinto quarto and offal cooking was just, it, it, was, it, was, it was what I was eating in the restaurants. And then, of course, I didn't know much about him, but then realised, of course, that he was drawing on these strong English traditions, but also... French and Italian and eating out and that whole spirit around around offal, which does elevate it. It doesn't elevate it into luxurious because he doesn't do that with food, does he, Fergus Henson? But it elevates it into goodness. Mm. And so I probably have to credit him with helping me understand the, the, the place that tripe had in, in, in it in Roman food. So and this is what has been such an important exchange for me because it was thanks to the British tradition and his tradition that I was then able to maybe better understand the tradition here. And then actually, I must say, I think the best tripe in Rome is, is at Sino Osteria, which is a, a Chinese takeaway. But it's a Chinese, but it's a Ch- Chinese restaurant and takeaway. But it's there. It, that's wonderful. I mean, it's Jun. It's uh, um, and he's a young, you know, runs this restaurant and his father's in the kitchen with this crazy Italian natural wine list, but serving very traditional Chinese food. And their spicy tripe really is a thing of great beauty. Because that's the other thing, isn't it? I mean, you know, around textures in food, going back to the, you know, your first question about what's the aversion, you know, the the, the sort of significance placed on texture in in, in Chinese eating. But I think Fergus as well is very good at that. You know, the the pleasure of textures, the the pleasure of unexpected or, or slightly different feelings, it sounds delicious. I'll have to, next time I'm in Rome, whenever that will be, I'll have to look that one out. So the virtual dish that you were going to contribute to the Come to Be Hungry season feast is Chipa alla Romana. The, so the Ardaboni recipe, which is from 1939, which is for her tripe braised in tomato sauce, which, as I say, can also be made without tomato. You just, you just need a meat sauce. But it's, yeah, it's very delicious. And where can uh, listeners find out more details on your work? Probably my Guardian column is the best place. But no, I mean, I do have a blog still, Rachel Eats, which is a very neglected, but it is still there. How many books have you published now? Three. So Three. the one about Rome, the one about Sicily, the one about pasta was the most recent, which is probably, the, 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 the I, I hope, a sort of good reflection of my work now, which I do hope is growing up. That's, and I'm just, and I'm starting a new book now about the whole of Italy. But taking inspiration from the pasta book, so not the whole of Italy, of course, because that would be an encyclopedia 
or many encyclopedias, but postcards of the different regions. So this is lovely, this conversation, because I'm excited about looking at different ingredients in different regions. So I have a lot more to say about tripe in two years' time all over Excellent. Italy. Well, that's good to know. I know where to come to once for further information. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been brilliant. It's been really insightful. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about tribe. I think it's so timely. And I do and I do think it's, you know, it is because it could so easily be changed. It's not our butchers can't get us tripe. It's not like there isn't tripe to be had. Like we know there are millions of cow stomachs going to waste somewhere. So the point is that you're asking the right question. And actually, maybe we should take it as a positive thing that we ask our butcher and they say, I can't get you any. But actually, it, it, it's there. It's yeah. just a case of how it how it gets to us. And that I suppose the more of us that that ask to have it and have it at the front of the counter and, and have it bleached. I mean, you know, I mean, cooking a whole, I have cooked a whole cow's stomach and, and you could smell it at the end of the road. It was an organic, you know, tripe and it was just, it was extraordinary. I mean, I, I just, I don't, you know, there's, I think there's a, a saying in Roman about, you know, if you cook tripe, you don't eat it <laughs> because the smell is so intense. Cause gonna say, cause it is very approachable in Rome. It's a it's a white roll at the front of the at the front of the mm. counter, you know, and when you come to Rome, you'll see. I mean, there's a young butcher on the market, and he has the most beautiful stall, and he and it's a very handsome, aesthetically pleasing stall. But it's the stall with coarse on it, which I don't happen to eat. But there's all the horse meat, and then there's all the offal, and you know, kidneys and liver and tripe and nervetti and oxtail and head. They're all at the front of the counter, but because they're all in, and it's not a boutique store, it's a working market store, but you know, it's the way it's presented. I think she really uh, hit the nail on the head there, striking and unfamiliar, and it's like nothing else. It really isn't like anything else. I mean, what do you think about these classic ways of serving after the descriptions, the tripe and onions or tripe and vinegar? Which way are you swaying? I mean, I know which way I'm swaying, and it's towards the Mediterranean. I have to say, I think tripe in a tomato sauce. Uh, I've seen the Ardabona recipe and actually she uses a bit of bacon in there as well. So I'm sure it would be a lovely sort of rich tomato sauce that would <laughs> perhaps mask any blandness that we fear from the tripe. Uh, I also like the idea that she was talking about the Chinese style as well, which you've experienced. I've not mm. had that opportunity. Um, and I understand that in China, it's, it's the texture is really important. It's not just the the quality of the food or what that you know the, the meat itself. It's the actual texture that's important. I think the chili the chili element would certainly enliven it. But I have to say, deep fried tripe. I mean, most things that are deep fried taste good. So I I actually think for me, as much as I would, I'm sure the tomato. And the spicy versions are good. I think deep fried tripe is the way to go, mm. I think, for me. Mm. They call it um, Lancashire calamari, don't they? <laughs> Do they? <laughs> I think they were trying to get a positive spin on it, yeah. yeah. It seems to me that it's just a texture and also the fact it's a, a weird food. But I've eaten so many weird foods and, you know, I've had testicles, also known as fries or stones sometimes, and I've had brain, and they're not strongly flavoured at all. And I would say... They're textural, and I have no problem with those. So I'm feeling like tripe would just be the same, a bit like tofu. You know, it just adds a bit of um, 
well, certainly some nutrients, extra nutrients to the food, and it adds some texture, but the taste element is left left to uh, everything else, which is, I guess, why the tripe and onions idea, I guess, is, it seems even more drab now. Yeah, but I think the key is surely seasoning with a sauce like that. I think you need plenty of things like mace, perhaps, maybe nutmeg. Uh, yeah. Yeah, to really sort of enhance the sauce. I guess that's what it, the problem is, is if you've had a, just a bland white sauce with a few onions in it and the white tripe, which I'm guessing it doesn't have much flavour. Probably unfair, mm. actually. I don't I can't say that. <laughs> I'm trying not to give anything away. <laughs> I guess if it's a, yeah, I think seasoning must be the key. You've got to give put plenty of seasoning in. Maybe try infusing the milk, perhaps with a bit of rosemary or thyme and or bay leaf, even just to just draw out some more flavour and um, make the dish perhaps mm. a little bit more exciting. No, I think I think you're absolutely right there. These simple foods, which England was is good at, you know, plain simple cooking, few ingredients, done well and well-seasoned is, is obviously part of that. And it's a skillful thing to do, exactly, yes. And we, I think we do have a habit more than other countries. Uh, I could be wrong here. But uh, we do tend to under-season our food. And I think we also cook awful badly, because I think that's one of the reasons why people don't like awful. I mean, there was a time when I absolutely thought it revolting, and it turned out I was just having, having it cooked poorly at the end of the day. And I learned how to cook, so I cooked it properly. And hey, presto, oh, Actually, it's delicious. So sometimes that's a that's a barrier. Liver that bounces off the wall because it's been overcooked, that sort of thing. That kind of thing, yeah. exactly. Yeah, at school. I remember having that with the tube still in it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember doing <laughs> nice. in home economics, having to cut the tubes out of kidneys and livers and stuff. Yeah, now that I am showing my age. <laughs> Does Jane Grigson have a recipe for tripe in her foods? I don't from think England? so. Not in English food anyway. Um, maybe it crops up in other books. Well, she has Andriette recipes in her pork and charcuterie. I think Elizabeth David has some tripe recipes in French provincial cooking. They crop up, but no one's singing about it. The only person I can find to, to be singing about it is Fergus Henderson, really. Yeah, in terms of modern cookbooks, for sure. I think once we got past post-war, it it's becomes less common, although they, they are still in, I think, 50s, 60s, you'll still find recipes in books because you could still get it mm. quite, I'm guessing it was reasonably widely available across the country. The thing is, it wasn't people now associate it with an, as a being a northern food and almost a northern speciality, mm. as you said, uh, Lancashire mm -hmm. calamari. It was really, I mean, it was eaten all over the country at one point. If you look back into the 17th and 18th centuries, there were accounts from London, Samuel Pepys, had it, for example. And even down in Sussex, there was a, a chap called Thomas Turner who lived in a village not far from where I live. And he kept a diary and he talks about having tripe on a regular basis, uh, just saying he paid four pence for a two pounds of tripe in 1757, things like that. So, yeah, it was once widely eaten. And I can't believe when you look at how far back in history it goes, it wasn't at some point quite highly spiced. Mustard, I think, is one of the things I think was traditionally served with it. So maybe that's what we need to do, a mm. mustardy sauce rather than or put mustard in the sauce with the onions. I don't know. Yeah, a mustard bechamel, that would probably be good. I wanted to get some practical experience of cooking some real tripe. 
it was hard to find somewhere that still sold it because they keep going out of business, it seems. But um, I did find someone, and that's Chad Wicks. They have a stall at Berry Market. Uh, they've had them for over 100 years selling black pudding. Well, at first, anyway, and making their own black pudding. Then they've broadened it to tripe, cow heel, trotters, perhaps those other things we associate with cookery in the north of England. I went there just a few days ago. I spoke to boss, Tony Sinacola. Obviously, that's not a Chadwick name, but uh, he's married into the family. <laughs> and I wanted to find out about the stall, the eating habits of his customers, as well as the decline of tripe and tripe selling in the north of England. I must say they were doing a roaring trade when I was there. But um, yeah, let's have a listen and see how I got on. Hello, Tony. Thank you very much for letting me come and have a chat to you at your amazing stall here at Berry Market, world famous Berry Market. World famous, yeah, no worries. <laughs> um, well, you sell a variety of things. I see you've got a lot of black puddings, but the thing I've come to talk to you about today is tripe. Yeah, well, we sell a lot of that as well. Do you? We do, yeah. Now we can get it. Um, oh. Historically, every town had its own little tripe dressers yes. and slaughterhouse. Yeah. So it was really easy to get hold of. The 60s, it started to be getting harder because the big slaughterhouse is all conglomerated. Mm-hmm. So it was harder to get hold of. These yeah. days, all the little tripe dressers have gone. So there's one right. left that we know of in the country. Wow, whereabouts is that? That's in Leicester. Leicester? Yeah, yeah. That's where everybody who still sells tripe gets their tripe from. I believe so, yeah, yeah. So it's shipped up to the northwest, mm. then it gets delivered to all the stalls. And is it just England, do you know, that it's going to? Is there, is there much of it in Wales or Scotland or Ireland? To you... be fair, honest answer to that is I haven't got a clue. <laughs> That's but, all right. <laughs> I mean, there's still you still get it on the continent. You still get it. It's mass produced on the continent. I guess that, that's what I was kind of getting at, really, I suppose, because you hear that it's cooked all the time and it's uh, just another food that people eat. It's just part of their regular menus, whereas here it's become so niche and so associated with the north of England. Perhaps, but we've got people that are from Eastern Europe who come and get it. Right. Italians come and get it. And Chinese, it was Chinese New Year a couple of weeks ago. We sold out of everything. Because people make it into like a hot pot, they describe it as, which yeah. is a stew that they all have for New Year. Yeah, I've had, so that's the only time I've had tripe, and that, that was at a Chinese restaurant in Manchester, <laughs> yeah. and I think it might be the thing you're describing. Yeah, yeah, probably. So yeah, I've never tried any British or English recipes or anything like that, and that's kind of what I wanted to do to do today, really. We, we do have loads of uh, product that we, can, we, that we sell and we do recipes for. I mean, we've got Ooh. everything from the three bellies of a, tr- of a cow, we do okay. pig's belly, we oh. do pig's feet, cow eels. It's all part and parcel of still on the market, a good tradition. Right, well, it's good to know that it is a good tradition. And there's a quite a wide range of ages buying it, would you say, or is it definitely geared to the kind of a more senior um, members? You'd be surprised. It's right across the age range. Right, okay. Pe- people who are buying it who are younger tend to cook it make it into stews and pasta and things like that. So it's maybe still being passed down in families as a I think food so. tradition. Oh, that's good to hear. I hope so. That's my future. So, yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I would say 10 years ago, I saw tripe in most butchers. And then over the last couple of weeks, as I thought, oh, I'm going to do an episode about tripe, couldn't find any. It's got so expensive. That's one of really? the other reasons. Yeah. Uh, obviously, beef's gone up. The products that they clean it with, cook it with, and everything else has gone up. Mm. Plus... Because it has to be transported, I pay more now for it wholesale than I used to sell it for a year ago. Wow. So it has gone 
quite a lot. It's really changed. I guess with it being awful, it spoils quickly, so it's got to be processed quickly. Yeah, same day, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, do you know much about the tripe dressing process? Because you get it, when it arrives with you, it's already dressed, Mm -hmm. which is what? Cooked? Cooked, yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, So a tripe dresser gets it straight from the animal Mm -hmm. and has to go through all the processes to get it to the end, what we get literally cooked, ready to go on a plate. So right. the, the dressing parts, I, I've been into the factory, but they won't let you go too far in, you know, because <laughs> they, they want to keep it secret. They want to do the oh, really? same as okay. us with our black puddings at our factory. Would you mind if we moved around the stall a bit and had a look at the different types of tripe? Not a problem. I'm only familiar with one, so I'm interested in what the other kinds are. No worries. Meet you at the front. Okie doke. There's a surprising range of things down here. <laughs> <laughs> so the basic tripes are black tripe, seen tripe and honeycomb. Okay. They're all from a cow. Yeah. We've got pig's belly, which is the equivalent from a pig. Oh, okay. Then we've got pig's feet, mm-hmm. which are oh, yes. cow eels. I must say the honeycomb tripe does look beautiful. Are you going to have a try? I'm, I am going to have a try. Yeah, yeah now. I'll have a try now. Yeah, go on. Yeah, sure. Do your little bit. Go on, then. It always looks to me like it's something like tofu or something, in that um, it's maybe text- more textural, and it's maybe about the things that you eat it with. That's the picture I've got in my head. Um, I quite like it in the summer mm. with um, lots of fresh lemon juice on, mm. olive oil and fresh garlic. So very Mediterranean. Yeah, put it all together, give it a stir in the fridge, for it, and it, the lemon juice almost cooks it. So ah, it, it okay. gives it, again, a different texture. Right, we're going in. It's very, um... Oh, it's good. <laughs> For starters. That's good. And it's very mild flavour, and I'm trying to think... It reminds me of something that I've had, and I can't quite place it's it. It's just got that little bit of a beef taste with it. I suppose that's what it is that I'm yeah, tasting. Yeah, yeah. But I can imagine having that with olive oil and, and lemon... In the summer, we also um, slice it up, slice up red onion, put them in a, a jar, top it up with apple cider vinegar, and then pickle it for three or four days. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how about the old tripe, uh, tripe and onions? Is that still a popular Lots dish? of people ask us how to cook that. So that's with the thick part of the seed, mm-hmm. cooked in milk with onions, and then thickened up at the end with corn flour. Oh, okay. Not my cup of tea, that one. It, but... it feels like it's a bit too bland or something. I feel like you need something quite punchy with it. Like when you yeah. said that, when you said lemon juice, it's like, oh, I Salt could see how that would be good. That. So the vinegar fills up every hole. Fantastic. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm going to have a go at cooking a couple of things at home. No worries. I'm going to try tripe and onions because I feel it's a classic British dish. <laughs> And then I'm also going to go historical and try a 18th century recipe that I found where it's deep fried in butter. Yeah, well, a it's, lot of people it, um, fry the black tripe, fry that in butter in a pan, and mm-hmm. then add oxo. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. What is the black tripe? Is that it's just is it just undyed or something? No, no, it's the first stomach on the cow. Right. A lot more body with it, um, and it's, that's the colour it is. Right. Okay. I must say, it doesn't look quite as appetising as the honeycomb. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. 
<laughs> Each to their own, isn't it? Well, yeah, indeed. How long has there been a stall here? Um, Chadwick stall. They've, they've been producing black pudding since 1865 as a family. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, 1980 with the tripe. Yeah. Which we used to get delivered from Padium. Again, another factory that's gone. You know, they just, they all go. So what do you think the future of tripe, I mean, sorry if this is a depressing question. Um, what do you think the future of tripe is in, in, in Britain? A lot of people, a lot of people eat it. A lot more than you would imagine. Mm. And we sell a lot more. But 20 years ago, we sold four or five times as much. Mm. So that's probably the future. It's just going to get less and less and more niche. Are you the only um, tripe seller on Berry Market? Yeah. Yeah. And to, at one point, was it kind of dotted with a, you know, half a dozen um, or whatever? No, no. We we just, we had a queue just for tripe at one time, you know. It's, oh, did you? Yeah. It's just, <laughs> but at the time, you could get it everywhere. You'd get it at your local butchers, your local market. You could even get it backpacked in Morrison's up to about 18 months Ooh, ago. Yeah, I've seen so, it in Morrison's. Yeah, yeah, so it was readily available. It just isn't anymore. Gosh. Well, I'm definitely going to take some to cook at home. Oh, of course. Well, I think I'll, I'll get the... Um, what was the type again called for tripe thick onions? Thick seam. I get some thick seam and I'll get some honeycomb as well, I no think. Um, and I'll get, a couple of, I'll get a couple of black puddings as well whilst, no whilst I'm here. Uh, but thank you very much for sparing the time to have a chat with me about this. And I'm excited about what I'm going to make at home. I'll let you know how it goes. That was not how it goes, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers, thank you. Well, you know, I recorded myself doing a little cookery spot, but... Um, yeah, I'm not, you're not hearing it. Oh, really? <laughs> Was it that bad? On other podcast episodes, I've done little cooking spots and um, I quite like doing them, mainly because when I first started doing podcasts, I don't, I don't know about you, but I was very self-conscious, mm. especially, and it's weird, especially when you, I'm on my own, which is odd because there's, not, there's no one to see me <laughs> be embarrassed. But what I found is if I'm cooking something or making something, it made me less self-conscious. So I would be doing the thing and then be talking about the thing at the same time. So that was the plan with the tribe. But it's not how it went. Um, Well, first of all, so yeah, so I made two things. I made deep fried tribe. It's an Elizabeth Raffled recipe. Oh, okay. Is that in her housekeeper book? It is. There's only one tribe recipe in there. And it sounds a lot like maybe the one that you mentioned by Robert May. Was it Robert May that you said did a, did a deep fried one? No, Meg Dodds. I found a deep fried recipe. Um, Meg Dodds. Re- okay. Robert May did. He does one. If I... oh, that was a garlicky one, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, garlic. It's like pickled tripe. I'm sure it's got vinegar in it or verjus. Oh, and, uh, and, okay. And, and it's got lots of garlic, which is even for Robert May, it's quite unusual. Uh, he does use garlic, but mm. uh, it's um, garlic and mustard. It sounds. It sounds almost like a tripe salad, I guess. If it's to say, if it's already cooked. In Elizabeth's book, it's it's to souse tripe, so it's both deep fried and it's pickled. Oh, okay. But it's it's pickled in a it's pickled in a brine rather than a vinegar. You, you put it in some salty water. So I just did a, a weak brine because I, I did it in the fridge. So I thought I'd yeah. have to do a strong brine just for twenty four hours. I think I did a just a five percent brine. Next day, patted it off, cut it into chunks, made a batter of eggs and flour. I put a bit of milk into. Basically made a, a pancake batter or a Yorkshire pudding batter. And uh, I bought some lard because I thought, well, we need some good animal fat so it can be a really high temperature so I can get an ultra crispy 
delicious soused tripe thing. And I thought, well, that sounds like calamari or it sounds like scampi. Yeah. So I bought some lemons. So I could squeeze some lemon on it and some tartar sauce. Not very 18th century, not very Elizabeth Raffle, but I thought this sounds like scampi. So I thought that's, that's what I'll do. The good thing about doing this historical cooking malarkey is you can kind of pick and choose when <laughs> when you want to be historical and when you want to kind of be modern. And oh my gosh, it was just a disaster. It looked really good. So I dipped it in. It was beautiful. These lovely squares of nice uh, frilly batter, like little scampies. And well, first of all, it was pretty salty, which is, well, I don't mind salty, but it was just a square of rubber. Oh, really? And the smell of hot tripe is very different to the smell of cold tripe. Oh, gosh. And suddenly, not the same as Andouillette, not as strong as that, but it was there was definitely a, um, a crossover in the Venn diagram of aromas somewhere. <laughs> and I just thought, no, I couldn't do it. I tried the thick seam, I tried the honeycomb, and it was just... You couldn't chew it. Wow. It's like chewing some, you know, undercooked fat on a, on a joint of meat where you're just like Ugh. chewing away, gnawing away and not going. And I just thought this, what have I done wrong? It's already cooked. I read so many recipes saying, yeah, you just pop it in, deep fry it. Delicious. Yeah. That is not what happened. It was just so rubbery and gross. And I just thought maybe it just needs longer cooking. Maybe, I don't know, it, the, it was a different kind of tripe that I got and it needed cooking a long time. I, ju- I just toughened it up. It's a deep fried tripe. Deep fried tripe is definitely a thing in France, in, in Lyon. It's a uh, tablier de sapeur. It's it's the fireman's apron, which doesn't endear it. But it mm. but mm. It's, it's really popular. And even Rachel said she'd had deep fried tripe. And it was really lovely with a glass of fizzy wine, as she said. So, yeah, how odd. So I thought I mean, there must be something going on here. So I thought, okay. Let's go tripe and onions. Actually, I've, I've got a slight intolerance to onions, so I had to go tripe and leeks. <laughs> and again, I started recording it, thinking, okay, I'm not going to be dissuaded. I just cooked it poorly the first time. And yeah, I, I based it on a couple of books, but I definitely, like you, thought, let's go St. John and let's have a look at Fergus Henderson's book. And he just made it sound so delicious. And the thing that really encouraged me was the fact that it said... Um, You've got to be careful with tripe because if you cook it too long, it gets so soft and melting, it almost disappears, I think he says. <laughs> so I was like, okay, this is going to work. So off I went and I cooked it for two hours in milk with uh, a couple of blades of mace and some salt and pepper. Fairly simple. I didn't add anything else. And it cooked away. And mind you, about um, three quarters of the way of the cooking, which is about two hours, my partner came in and said, oh, what's that delicious, creamy, leaky smell? And then he went, oh, what's that other smell? Oh, no. And I was sat in the in my lounge, which is next to the kitchen, doing a bit of work. And I was just saying, I know, I know what it smells like. <laughs> don't have to say does it really smell that bad? It's not really strong. It's really faint, but it's it's a bit... Hooey? It's not an off smell. It's like a wet dog smell, I suppose. <laughs> Stroke taste, which I guess is the problem, because you kind of take... You know, sometimes when you can taste a smell. Yeah, yeah. You kind of in the back of your throat. <laughs> it's a bit like that. And I thought, okay, well, it'd been cooking for two hours. 
every cookbook that I read said, use honeycomb, try and do it for two hours. So I felt fairly confident that I cooked it properly. And again, it was just horrible pieces of rubbery, yeah, like chewy, chewy fat. And it, and it was so, that, that kind of wet dog flavor was so prominent that I basically had a, an Andriette moment again, where I was just having to really concentrate on not retching. And I felt really bad because I put quite a lot of effort <laughs> into it. I went all the way to Berry Market and of course spoke to Tony about it. And ugh, I don't like to say this thing very often, but for me, it was just kind of gross. Okay. That didn't go as I thought it was going to go. I was, ho- I was hoping you were going to turn around and say that we've all been misinformed and that tripe is utterly delicious. Well, I hope there's somebody listening that can tell me where I've gone wrong. Because I think if it was tender and delicious, delicious in texture, I mean, I think the, I don't think I would have minded the taste as much. It was that sort of combination. There wasn't very much niceness to kind of latch onto there. But it's hard because when I tasted it at the stall, at, at the at Chadwick stall, it was fine. Perhaps we need to just make it into like a salad. I say a la Robert May or someone, you know, just in a nice vinegar or some mustardy sauce. Yeah, if I'd have just taken that tripe, gone home and prepared it like Tony suggested, like a ceviche, he said to slice some onions, I guess I would put some leek and garlic in instead, uh, some lemon juice, maybe you could put a few flakes of chilli or some chopped chilli in there, and some vinegar and some oil, and just let it macerate for a, a night in the fridge or something. I got a feeling that would have been really good because when he just gave me that cold tripe straight from the stall I felt so confident so I've gone wrong in the cooking I think and I've, and I think I've made a mistake and it's just probably a personal taste I think I've made a mistake in having it hot I think it's better cold yeah maybe maybe well, I, I mean I've had neither so I can't comment but it's it's just weird because other nations cook it and they, they seem to love it so I don't know where well, but maybe it's just us Brits that do it the wrong way. Maybe maybe the, the yeah. onion allium route isn't the right route. Maybe we should be sticking it in a spicy soup or like the Mexicans or, uh, you know, with chilies and or Sichuan pepper like they do in China. I don't know. Uh, or just even mm-hmm. a, a nice rich tomato sauce. Yeah. In fact, do you know what? I reckon if you made something like a hot and sour soup with fish sauce in it and loads of lime and chilling something sweet in there, some um, palm sugar or something. I made a really good broth. And I think if you sliced just cold tripe, not, didn't cook it in the soup, but just before presenting, you pop it in just for it to warm mm. through and not cook. So it didn't go rubbery. Yeah. I think that would be really good. And I think you would like that. It'd be like having uh, a faux or a hot and sour soup. Yeah, actually a hot and sour soup, there's often cubes of tofu in there. Instead of having cubes of tofu, some little strips of just warmed through tripe, I think you'd be really happy with that. So spice is the way to go then? I think spice, I think it's upping the flavour and using it as a textural note, but obviously preparing it in the right way because you don't want bits of rubber like I did. (laughs) Well, that's such a shame. Have you spoken to Tony to ask him to ask his advice? No, I'm embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) Too embarrassed. Even the second way, it was still completely inedible. It was more inedible the second way because the um, the smell of the tripe because it had been cooked for so long was really pronounced. 
So the tribe of onions was worse than the deep fried tribe. It's annoying because it's kind of my MO. You know, I'm always banging on about how offal's really good and everyone should be nose to tail eating. And all it is is we've had it cooked poorly and we need to get over it. And I feel like um, <laughs> I'm going against my usual preachings. But I guess you've got to not like something. Yeah. And maybe for me, the thing I don't like is tripe. I had my first house, we had a neighbour who had dogs and she used to cook tripe. Mm. On a Wednesday, they did. They had a shop as well, and they had half day closing on a Wednesday, and they cooked tripe every Wednesday afternoon. I would come home from work, and I have to say, mm. the smell was horrific. Even though she was cooking it next door, but we lived in a terrace, so it was. Yeah, I, I've never. I guess for me, I've never been able to get over that smell. But I just assumed it was because she was cooking. I'm, I'm assuming, to be fair to her, that she was just boiling it for the dog and not. From raw, I guess it hadn't been cooked previously and she wasn't cooking it with onions and milk or cream. And they don't clean it either, do they, when it's for dogs? They don't do the sort of the bleaching process? I believe not. Well, it certainly didn't smell like they'd done the bleaching process. It was quite horrific stench. <laughs> I can't see any way you could describe it. Um, her dog seems to like it, though. So you can still get dog food made with tripe. I found in uh, large supermarket chains still mm -hmm. serve dog food, a brand of dog food that contains tripe. I wonder where people would get tripe then if they did want to try some. I mean, I'm not sure if we've encouraged anybody to go out and try some. Maybe Chinese grocery stores might have some in their freezer. That seems to be the most, if you're not in the north, if you're not in the northwestern near Berry Market, yeah, uh, I believe there are a couple of places in London that do sell it, but I think you can also get it online. Mm -hmm. If you do, if you search enough, you can find places that will do. I guess it's like you say, it's probably frozen when it arrives, but you can get tri tripe online. Well, I hope there's some people out there that, first of all, can say, right, you two, you've been approaching this completely incorrectly. This is the right way to go when it comes to eating or cooking tripe. It'd be interesting to hear. What other people think about tripe today? And I hope I'm encouraged or, or that we're encouraged but uh, by the fact that maybe there's more people out there eating tripe than we than we think. Definitely. I believe there is some sh other chefs out there as well beyond Fergus Henderson that are still big fans of it. So perhaps they can enlighten us as to the best way to prepare tripe. People should get in contact, I think, if they can give us any cooking tips and some sourcing tips. Yeah, definitely. And from other countries, of course, that isn't, you know, that's not England or the UK. It'd be interesting to see some other interesting ways that people are preparing tripes of all the different kinds. Or perhaps we should just go to St. John and get them to cook it for us there. Yeah, just get it done <laughs> properly. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> still on the menu. They do. Is it still on the menu? They still have tripe at their different restaurants on the menu. I can't remember last time I looked at they had a, a jellied tripe. For a starter. Jelly tripe. Jelly tripe. Again, if it's the same texture as that tripe that I had on Chadwick stall, and if it's a good flavoured jelly, you know, with lots of, I don't know, Madeira and other things in it, I could see that would be fine. And they did have deep fried tripe with chips and ketchup, as well as pickled tripe as well. Right. On, on one of the menus I saw recently when I looked. Well, maybe we need to go on a trip. Yes. St. John's. <laughs> And have a slap up tripe meal. Yeah. Tripe for starter, tripe for main, <laughs> tripe for dessert. I think you've made me a little afraid though, Neil, after <laughs> <laughs> description of your experiences of cooking it. No, I feel I feel a failure, Sam. <laughs> I won't deny it. 
I think you shouldn't beat yourself up. It's, uh, it's obviously a technique out there to make it delicious because it was so popular once upon a time. People can't have been eating it because it was like rubber or eating a, a plimsoll or something. It's, there must have been, it must have been delicious and cooked in a delicious way for it to have been so popular and to have merited having restaurants as well. Well, exactly. I've got a feeling it's one of those things where if somebody took me and showed me how to make tripe and onions and I could see it being done, but it's really hard to, to write these things down. So maybe something was just being lost in translation when I was reading the recipes. Mm, maybe. Or maybe not. Oh no, it's such a shame. <laughs> it's such a horrendous time. Well, I'm, you know what? I'm undeterred. I still think the Mediterranean way is just the way to go, like I say. Mm. So that's what I'm going to do. So next time I'm in Berry Market, I will be buying some tripe. And I'll be some honeycomb tripe, because that was the tenderest. I'm going to try it as a ceviche sort of style cold salad and go from there. I think that's definitely the way to go. Well, that wraps it up for this special edition of the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. And yes, I know I mentioned it several times, but just to remind you, there are links in the show notes about everything we've discussed today. There's links to mine and Sam's social media, as well as Rachel Roddy's blog and the Chadwick's Facebook page, plus my now infamous Antoinette video. And there's all the usual links to the website, my books, should you want to investigate or buy a copy. But anyway, other news. Yes, I'm appearing at a round table event at the British Library. Get me. It's an online event, so anybody can come. It's not a free event, but prices vary, and none of them are particularly expensive. And in that round table, we shall be discussing the importance of 18th century female food writer and it's hosted by Polly Russell who's a great food historian you've probably seen her pop up on all sorts of shows on TV as well as Radio 4's The Kitchen Cabinet and the event is called The Culinary Worlds of 18th Century Women in Britain, USA and Turkey so that's going to be quite interesting I know a little bit about the USA because of course there's overlap with British food but Talking about Turkey, especially female food writers in Turkey in the 18th century, that's going to be a big learning curve, that aspect for me, so I'm really looking forward to that. It's on the 25th of May, 2023, at 5 o'clock. I will, of course, be talking about our Elizabeth Raffold mainly, but, you know, other food writers in general. I'm also giving a talk in Levensume in Manchester, South Manchester, on the 14th of May, 2023, at 7pm at a barstroke cafe called Station South. I've put the link to the Eventbrite in the show notes, and of course the British Library one's in there too. I've also put links to the Bread and Thread podcast, which was on recently, and Tony Robinson's Cunningcast talking about the history of pies. Oh yes, Easter eggs. Now there's just one that I've added, and it's a bit of chat about tripe dressing which kind of ended up being tagged on at the end, and I couldn't really integrate it into the talk. We heard Tony say that it was a bit of a trade secret as to how tripe is dressed. Well, this Easter egg is where I describe to Sam a video I found on the internet showing somebody dressing tripe, or at least getting the process started anyway. I'm going to say no more about that, but it's not for the faint-hearted. And don't forget, I want to hear from you about tripe, memories, recipes, cooking tips. We definitely need those. Do you know where I went wrong cooking the tripe? When the new season starts properly, I'll be collecting emails, DMs, etc. from all of you good folk for the postbag edition. So feel free to send anything fitting the brief. That's anything British food history. 
cooking techniques, stroke advice, maybe you've spotted something in the news, anything. Contact details again, my email is neil at britishfoodhistory.com. You can send me a direct message on Twitter, at Neil Buttery, or Instagram, doctor, that's D-R underscore Neil underscore Buttery. Leave a message in the comments, or post on the new British Food History Facebook discussion page, which is at groups forward slash British Food History. Hey, thanks to everybody, by the way, who's followed, downloaded, listened and spread the word to help the podcast grow even while we're between seasons. Very, very grateful. Also, thanks to everyone who, in this little in-between time, has started a £3 subscription or treated me to a virtual coffee or pint. I'm very grateful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now, I'm going to be back at the end of May or start of June with season six of the British Food History Podcast. So until then, cheerio.